This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. Let's get right into it. Colin, who we got today? Today we got my man, Josh Adler from Sourcewater. How you doing, Josh? Great. Doing great. Awesome. So we were just talking about this before we started recording. I've heard about Source Water, seen you guys around, but I have no clue what you actually do. So why don't you give us a quick overview of what Source Water is? Oh man, something's going wrong with our marketing if there's anybody in oil and gas. I'm going to assume you Source Water. <laughs> oh God, they all assume that, but why? <laughs> source Water is a digital platform for providing information about water in the upstream oil and gas industry. So it's a water intelligence platform. And where it originally came from is I was a, I've been starting companies since I was about 16 in a lot of different industries, which we can talk about later, but basically if something starts going well, it's like, okay, that was easy. I got to get out of this. If it's not going well, it's like, I got to do something different. And so I was a, a Sloan fellow at MIT in 2012 and was looking for what my next thing would be and got really interested in the energy industry, particularly in just the growth of unconventional energy, you know, otherwise known as hydraulic fracturing or fracking. And I didn't know anything about it. I hadn't done anything in energy before ever. And really, I just got into it because there was a particular program at MIT that you had to basically apply to get into this sub-program. And so I was like, if that many people want to do it, then I want to do it too. <laughs> so I applied to get into this thing and kind of talked my way in. And I was the least knowledgeable. Everyone else had some sort of energy industry experience. <laughs> I had absolutely none. And so one of the first lectures that we had was by the MIT expert on oil and gas, kind of Franco Sullivan. And so he put up one of these charts that was like a hockey stick, 2005 to 2012 growth in unconventional gas production. And it goes from like, it was like a 20x increase in about seven years. And when you translate that into dollars, it's a market that's grown from a couple billion dollars a year to hundreds of billions a year in about seven years. This, again, mm -hmm. this 2012, this is when things were really just starting to inflect up. And I looked at that and just said, anything gets that big that fast, there is no way they know what they're doing. So as an entrepreneur, there's going to be a big opportunity in that space. Big market, no incumbents, a lot of new things happening people scrambling to keep up. Okay. What is it that's new about this whole unconventional energy thing? Because whatever it is that's new about it compared to the conventional, that's where the opportunity is going to be. So I spent about a year and a half learning all about this, doing a bunch of different projects. And my conclusion was what's really new about this is the water. For the first time, water is the primary input and output of the upstream energy process. I mean, nothing volumetrically, nothing else is even a little bit close. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, water is the primary input. That was never the case before, except a little bit for drilling muds. So there's all this sourcing water aspect of a lot of water's got to be brought to the site. And then the incredible thing is then it was probably less than a hundred thousand barrels per frack. But today you might be talking about millions of barrels, not per frack, but per job basically, because there's things called zipper fracks and mm -hmm. multi-well pad drilling. And so you might be sourcing the water for 10 or 20 wells at a time. And each one of those wells has gone from using 50 to 100,000 barrels to maybe 500, 800,000 barrels. So you're talking about orders of magnitude increase since then. But even then, it was a whole new thing to have to bring water to the site. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end, water's always been the biggest 
product of oil wells, maybe some gas wells too, but for the most part, existing onshore wells, most of that water was being re-injected for enhanced oil recovery. And so even though you had to deal with a bunch of water, you basically were investing in building a closed system that would then kind of take care of itself. And most of that drilling, if you were talking about onshore oil and gas drilling, that just hadn't really been a big thing in the United States since like the mid eighties. And so you had this 25 plus year stretch where there was very little onshore drilling in the US. And so the fields that were still operating were basically older, bigger fields where all of that EOR infrastructure had been built and nobody's really dealing with, you know, oh, there's all this new water, what do we do with it? It was just kind of, you know, clockwork. Mm-hmm. So with the rise of hydraulic fracturing, not, a, not only did you need to bring all this water in, but all of this water that comes back up, there's no EOR, at least not yet, mm-hmm. in unconventional in fracking. And so you have to get rid of all the water that you injected that comes back up, the flow back. And then you also have to do something with all the produced water that comes up with the oil because you can't do EOR. And so getting rid of that water that comes up with the oil, both the flow back and the produced water, turns out to be actually a majority of the total cost and probably you know 95% of the fluid volume that's coming out of operating an oil or gas well. And so all of this was new. I mean, it didn't really start taking off until 2009. And from the period from 2009 to really 2000, end of 2014, energy prices were so high that nobody even knew what their costs were, much less cared about them. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe costs went up by a lot and they really did, but nobody was paying any attention to that, right? Whatever the margin was, it was enough. Yeah. And so there were no systems. It was just, you know, bring more trucks, you know, or run a, run a line, run a transfer line, but you know, from wherever. And this was in, in 2012 and into 2013 where I was looking at this and saying, okay, it seems like water has become this huge thing in an industry, in a huge industry. And it's gotten there really fast. And I just, I don't believe that people are looking at this in a systemic way. I'm sure everybody's just blowing and going. And that's true. Mm-hmm. And so the original idea, well, there's kind of one more step there, which is there was a guy I got introduced to who was in my program who was running completions for Shell in the Marcellus. And so, of course, he was a technical expert on all this stuff. And I ended up spending a lot of time with him and he took me on a a tour of some of their facilities and asked him a lot of questions and was just trying to learn from everybody I could. And so one of the things that he told me was, you know, in the Marcellus in Pennsylvania, there's basically no disposal. And so if you have to get rid of your flow back, you might be hauling it 200 or 300 miles to Ohio in trucks. Wow. And your cost can be $20 per barrel of water. Wow. And whatever that, now these are gas wells, so water to gas ratios aren't as easy to understand as water to oil ratios, but nonetheless, yeah. still a fair amount. It doesn't matter if it's a little bit of water. You know, you're, you're totally upside down on that. And so... He said, you know, one of the things that we try to do is we try to reuse as much of this water as we can and put it back down into the next frack so that we don't have to haul it to Ohio. But a lot of times it can take a few months between fracks. I mean, the market even then was pretty slow for gas in the Marcellus. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll do is we'll try to figure out, is there anybody else around us, any of our competitors who might have a frack coming up who can take our water and maybe we'll get them next time. You know, we kind of, we call it credit water. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when I heard that, 
And I already knew water becomes this big thing. What is this new about? And then I hear, okay, so you guys were completion engineers who this is like the last thing on their list of 120 things to do. Like, what am I supposed to do with this water? Who were calling their counterparts at their competitors who maybe they know, maybe they don't being like, Hey bud, yeah, you got anything coming up where you can take my water? Cause I'll get you next time. <laughs> and so when I heard that, I was like, okay, that's a marketplace screaming to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can make that efficient. And I knew with this whole water thing, I wasn't going to invent some new membrane or chemistry or, you know, processing. And I wasn't going to do something really capital intensive. I was looking to do something that I could fund to get it going. It was mm -hmm. going to be something data and information oriented. And so I kind of had this aha moment where it's like, okay, water's the biggest thing going in or out of this industry. And that's a new thing. And how do they know where they're going to get that commodity from or where to send it to or what the fair market price is or who has it or who needs it or what do you do when it doesn't show up? Like, where's your phone book that you're, you're calling the next water guy and the next water guy. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, they're actually trying to like trade with each other in this rudimentary way. Okay. It's almost I like over the counter trading forum, you know, just calling their it, counterparts it, and like, like hey, you want to take my water? <laughs> it's good. The truth is, I mean, as we've learned about now, I'm seven years into it. So <laughs> there's like a lot more. This is like what I thought I knew, right? And like everything was wrong, but we'll get to everything was wrong. So, you know, my thought was, okay, a marketplace for water as a commodity that helps these companies basically trade and recycle with each other. And that's good for everybody. It's better economically. It's better environmentally, right? They're spending less money on water source and water disposal. And they don't have the, basically the community impacts of having more versus less trucking miles or taking smaller distances. And that really is the biggest community impact mm -hmm. in terms of upstream onshore is really the trucks, right? Yeah. So if you can reduce trucking miles, everybody, everybody likes that. Mm -hmm. You're reducing cost. It's all around, you know, in some cases there's disposal impacts, there's disposal capacity issues. So this seems like it's just a win all the way around. And so I can do that. I can create a marketplace for water as a commodity, kind of like, you know, Airbnb for water. Now there's been a lot of evolution since then, and sure. that is not what we do today. <laughs> okay, just to be real clear, okay. like we do still have a marketplace for water and disposal and recycling, but that is not at all the business today. It's not so the primary focus. Okay. It's not, and so there's been a lot of evolution since I officially started the company at the beginning of. 2014. Well, just, I mean, in water management as a whole, there's been a lot of evolution. I mean, I remember, you know, back in 2009, 2010, when I was a motorman on the rig, part of my job was literally managing the water on the lease for the oil company that we were drilling for. And I'd get my, my forklift and I'd drive down the lease road and I'd check the water on the pit and, you know, throw a rope with a nut tied around it down there and be like, yep, you know, I've got however many feet of water. And then I shut the water off and that's how it was controlled. You know, they didn't even have an internal water management procedure. And then fast forward 11 years and we would like really start fracking and really start using water. And this is when you start just seeing all your water transfer companies just pop up and, you know, you got, they didn't have lay flat hose back then. It was just a, you know, 10 inch aluminum pipe running across all the leases and you'd be in the middle of a frack job and, you know, you'd be running out of water. You'd run out of sand too, but, you know, you'd run out of water and it's just a nightmare, you know, logistically speaking for water. And so just seeing the evolution of that, you know, take, take place. I'm sure that you guys had a lot of evolution internally oh, as yeah. well. I mean, the, we've been evolving at the same time as the industry has gone through tremendous evolution in, in water management and, you know, water sourcing, recycling, disposal. And so I've been along for the ride 
you know, really since 2012 and everything has changed over that time. And it's also different in every basin and every play really can be very, very different between them. So, I mean, one of the many, many mistakes I made in the early days, I don't know what the mistakes I'm making are right now, but I'm sure there's plenty of them, <laughs> was basically making the assumption that, no offense to anybody listening in, in the Marcellus, but kind of like Marcellus is kind of the minor leagues and then we take it to the Permian big league. So like, <laughs> let's get it right in Pennsylvania where there's only about 20 or 30 operators. And then let's, you know, take it to the big show and go, you know, go to Texas. Well, it turns out that the water management issues and practices and, you know, most of the companies are just nothing alike mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. I mean, even from Pennsylvania, Ohio, there's huge differences, but Pennsylvania, the Permian versus the Eagleford versus, you know, the Oklahoma plays or up to North Dakota, they're all totally different from each other. So different in every way. And a lot of times, even when you have the same companies that are active in both plays, let's say like a, a Shell, you know, or a Chevron, those groups aren't even talking to each other. Yeah. You know, there's stuff that the group is doing in the Marcellus that Permian's never heard of and probably never will hear about, mm-hmm. you know, and they're like, has anybody ever done this? Yeah. Your own company <laughs> has been doing it for five years. So you know? they're siloed internally, it, right? It can be very siloed. And the whole, like you were saying about water management, not really being understood as a practice. One of the toughest things for us has been that every aspect of upstream oil and gas, every department is involved with water in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, every single one, you could just mm-hmm. go every department that's at a company and, you know, we can come up with ways that they're managing we're dealing with their impact about water. Yeah, well, there's drilling, completions, production, everyone deals with water. Everybody in every step of the way. I mean, even, you know, supply chain, procurement, IT, legal, you know, regulatory compliance, mm-hmm. and of course, drilling, completions, mm-hmm. production, land, logistics, everybody. And even, you know, geology, you know, geoscience. Yeah. But there's no place, the idea of, of kind of centralizing water expertise and decisions and budget that's only started to emerge in the last couple of years. And even at the biggest companies that, which have formed water management teams, those teams generally don't have the budget or authority to control very much of what's happening with water. And in fact, you know, I had a meeting with one of the biggest, uh, with the, the finance office for one of the biggest, biggest companies in the industry a few years ago. And the reason they called me in was they were just saying, you know, we're, we're waking up to the fact that we have a bigger inventory of water than anything else in our company, in our global operations, which are like as big as it gets. We have more water than any other product in inventory by far. We have no tracking of this. We have no measurement of this. We have no way of applying any kind of cost or financial metrics to our water management. And they just, they brought me in for a couple hours to kind of pick my brain about it. And I don't know if they've done anything with it since then, but that's, universally the case in the industry. So even in the companies that now have water management teams, they still tend to be very limited in their scope and in their influence. And it's, you know, even though water's the biggest thing going in and out, it's kind of like a lot of times water will fall on completions, Mm -hmm. but talking to a completions engineer about managing water, it's kind of like if you were going to have a meeting at Google with their head of artificial intelligence, somebody who's just really big deal. Who's like one of the smartest people at the company. And, you know, you got to the meeting with this, you know, demigod of brilliance. And you were like, Hey, what did you decide to do about the sandwiches at lunch today? Cause some people don't want ham and 
some people don't want any, you know, aioli on their turkey. <laughs> and the, you can imagine like head of AI being like, are you talking to me? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> are we having a conversation right now about sandwiches? Because you have 10 seconds of my time. And it's like with the completions engineers, right? I mean, these are among the smartest, best trained people in the company designing really, really complicated things that are happening underground. It's like, oh yeah, water goes in and out, whatever. You know, like somebody handles that, but actually nobody's really handling that. And so, you know, they're responsible maybe for where that water's going to go and where it's going to come from, but there aren't actually systems for the management. It's like, well, you know, land finds the water. Okay. Well, land's out there. What are they doing? They're knocking on the, you know, the house, the, the ranch next door and saying, Hey, we're going to need some water on these mm-hmm. days. We'll pay you this much. Sound good to you sign this. You know, yeah. there's so many ways that it, that it plays through, you know, on the disposal side. It's like, well, we send to this guy cause we always have sent it to that guy, yeah. you know? And like, I've known that guy for a really long time and he gives us the best deal in the business. Yeah. You know? Like, <laughs> okay. You know, <laughs> it's a very, um, very fragmented process, right? Yeah, Through. very much. It's so complex. And so, you know, despite this being the biggest thing going in or out and actually not only the largest expenditure on the OPEX side, on kind of the LOE side is the hauling and disposal or piping and disposal of flow back and produced water. Mm-hmm. But actually by some measures, it seems to be a significant majority of the total cost. So, I mean, more than 50 cents of every dollar spent on producing a barrel of onshore unconventional oil is spent on getting rid of the water that comes up with the oil. Oh. And in some place like the Delaware Basin, those water oil ratios can be eight or 10 to one mm-hmm. and they only go up. Yeah. You know, so when you look at what's happening in that water market, particularly in the Permian, which is really where we're focused now and have been for a few years. Even if drilling goes down, like in 2015 and 2016, the amount of water being produced still just keeps going up. It just goes up slower. Yeah, it's what's the running joke? You know, we just drill water wells that happen to produce a little right. bit of oil. Pay for them with oil that, <laughs> yeah. that we pull out. Exactly. And so the industry thinking is evolving on this, but it's you know, it takes a long time to change. And we've been, you know, we've been along for the for the ride. And now I think there's there's kind of an attitude of well, they're still here, so they must be doing something right. You know, let's <laughs> let's go talk to them again. Well, it's funny. I mean, if you look at you know, if you look at private equity and investment banks, and anyone from the capital side of things, you know, everyone's pulling back on capital deployed into oil and gas assets itself, and now everyone's looking at water. You know, putting in water infrastructure, whether it's saltwater disposals, pipelines, yada yada yada. So now you're starting to see all this infrastructure just being built and tons of capital being poured into the area. But, you know, not a lot of people are talking about how can we make this all more efficient in the first place. It's, you know, all this stuff, the whole industry evolution on this is totally natural and all makes sense in the moment, but you can also see where it's going. And so I've been, to some extent, I've been singing the same tune, like since 2015, when the downturn really started and even before that. And so just by virtue of look big picture, right? The biggest thing going in or out of the industry is water. It's never going down. You know, even if the amount of oil goes down, the amount of water is going to keep going up. There are certain things that just follow from that. Mm-hmm. And it's a new thing where there isn't existing infrastructure. You can basically see where it's going. And then it, it does go that way. It's a question of how long it takes. So yeah. what we saw during the initial part of the, the downturn, 2015, 2016, first thing that happened, okay, if oil's going to stay at $40 a barrel or, you know, God forbid, 30 for an extended period of time, and this isn't just a blip, we've got to figure out how to survive in that environment. Well, you know, production used to cost 10 or $15 a barrel for onshore conventional in, you know, kind of low cost plays in the U S 
and now it's costing 40 plus, which doesn't work if we're selling it for 40. How did it double? Okay, here's how it doubled. The introduction of water logistics as the primary activity in onshore upstream is why it doubled. That was not a cost before, and now it's a cost that can be $15, $20 per barrel or more if what you're doing is hauling that water to disposal. So, okay, answered question number one, right? Why have your operating costs gone crazy? The introduction of water logistics as the primary activity of your business, which you did not realize. <laughs> okay, so what do you do about that? Well, during that 15, 16 period where this suddenly mattered, because again, before that, no one cared, because it was like, well, it's costing 40, but we're selling it for 100, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so what was the first reaction to that? Okay, we have this huge OPEX cost, and it really comes from trucking. So how do we get rid of the trucks? Okay, we replace trucks with pipes. Plus, there's not a great ROI on drilling new wells right now. So to the extent that we've got capital available still, let's take that money and let's replace trucks with pipes. Because then you can see we have this huge reduction in our operating cost. Well, that's kind of like if a big energy company said, you know, we're really sending a lot of guys to Midland from Houston every week. And we're spending a lot of money on hotel rooms at that Doubletree downtown. So let's build our own E&P hotel and get rid of all that spending on the hotel rooms. Yeah. And so they take their capital and build their own facility, you know, vertically integrated, because they all want to be vertically integrated if they have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. That way we control it all and we can keep our costs super low. And so they build the E&P hotel, you know, on the loop there. And, and then next thing you know, the E&P hotel, well, you know, it probably averages 25% full. Some nights there's nobody there. Some weeks there's nobody there. The breakfast is not very good. They don't really make the beds too well and it's getting kind of dirty. And, you know, at some point, what happens? Well, somebody says, man, we have the worst hotel in town. You know, let's sell it to Hilton because they really know how to run a Hilton garden. And so, you know, they can, they can keep it full. They know what they're doing. And it's worth a lot more to them than it is to us because actually we're in the energy business, not the hotel business. Well, it's exactly the same with water. So all these companies said, let's get rid of the trucks. Let's build our own pipes. Let's build our own systems. And that way we can control it. And what did they do? They were basically taking high return, high risk energy money from investors and investing it in building small, private, badly run water utilities that were mostly empty because nobody there specializes in it. That's not their business. And by the way, key fact about the water flows in upstream oil and gas, if you could see my fingers right now, you basically don't need any water for a while. Then you need a lot of water for kind of a short time then you don't need any water for a while and you need it somewhere else. At the same time, you're not producing any water at all, then the wells get drilled and completed. You're flowing back a lot of water for kind of a short time, and then you're producing a modest amount of water forever, or until you plug that well, if that ever happens. Mm -hmm. And it kind of goes down a little over time, but it never stops. And so what does that mean? Plus you've got all these different completions happening all over the place within your system, and there's other completions happening everywhere else. So what does it follow from that? Basically, you can never perfectly size your own vertically integrated infrastructure. You're always going to have either too much capacity or too little, always. Mm -hmm. There's only gonna be like moments in time where you happen to be passing from one end to the other end. It's always gonna be swinging one way or the other. Yeah. And so with fixed infrastructure, like a water utility or like a hotel 
or like an airplane or like a trucking company. The whole business is maximizing ROI by achieving maximum capacity utilization. Whatever it is you've built, you want to keep it 99.9% full on average, because in the short run, it's really hard to add or subtract capacity. Yeah. And no one company can ever do that because of that peaky type flow of the water. So coming back to our, you know, ENP hotel, what do they do? They sell off the hotel to somebody who's really good at running hotels. They get their capital back out because actually that capital makes way better returns doing what they're really good at, which is developing energy. Yep. It's the exact same thing with the water infrastructure. So what's happened? All of these companies, 2015, 2016, if they had any capital available, were using it to replace trucks with pipes. Then they realized these pipes are mostly empty and they're sucking up our capital. And you know what? Now we're having a hard time. I mean, in today's market, we need to free up capital. We need to pay down debt. Why do we have capital tied up in really low yield infrastructure that seems to be empty most of the time? And by the way, is a huge distraction because nobody really knows what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? They sell it off to what are now becoming water midstream companies. Yep. The exact same thing happened with crude midstream 50 to 30 years ago. The exact same thing happened with natural gas midstream like 30 to 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same thing, right? We need to get our crude or our gas to market. No one else is going to do that. Let's build transmission pipelines to move this crude or this gas a really long distance to get it to ships or to refineries. And then after these get built, they say, you know, we really only keep our pipeline kind of like half full or a quarter full. Let's sell it to a company that can market it to our competitors who don't want to do business with us for good reason, because mm -hmm. we're always going to cherry pick the best opportunities. So we need to sell it to a third party that's kind of going to be fair about this and is really good at keeping those pipes full. And everybody's going to end up benefiting from it. It's going to be more efficient. It's going to cost less. Let somebody else make money on that business. That's not our business. Exactly the same thing is happening with water now. So these infrastructures that are being built by the bigger companies are able to afford it. They're selling it off to typically private equity backed water midstream companies. What does mm -hmm. that mean? It kind of means disposals that are hooked up to pipelines. Water midstream is kind of a fancy <laughs> term for it, but it does get more and more advanced as they introduce recycling yeah. and other stuff there. So those companies then start to consolidate because they want to, you know, capture as much of the market as they can and gain all those efficiencies and get all that financing. Mm -hmm. And that's happening right now, but there will always be competition in that space. There'll always be new entrants. There'll be people mm -hmm. buying and selling and there will be that'll create opportunities for trading because you're going to want to be able to buy and sell capacity, both on a spot market and a futures market because of those peaky flows and the fact that the water midstreams don't control the timing of the fracks and the production of all these different companies. I mean, if you imagine 10 different operators hooked up to a pipeline, 20 different operators hooked up to a pipeline system, and these are structured as what are called acreage dedications. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing in other types of midstream, which is basically the company that's got the pipes and has the rights to take the water. They have the opportunity that they are going to get all of the water that gets produced by that lease. Great. I'm going to get paid for that water. But they also have the downside that there's no guarantee of how much water they're going to get. And they're taking all of the risk building out that infrastructure. So they're making a very big bet and they're hoping that they're good at guessing the future, how much water is going to come out of the ground. Well, to know that you need to know how many oil wells are going to get drilled. And to know that, you need to know what the price of oil is or will be in the future. Well, no one knows that. And you know what it costs to produce those wells. You need to know if those wells get drilled, how much water is going to come out of each one. Because you're basically making money off the, the derivative, not of the original thing. Yeah. So it, it gets very complex. And the way that you hedge on that, very risky, 
the only way you can really hedge on that is to have a real commodity marketplace for yeah. you know trading that capacity into the future and locking it in that hotel the emp hotel analogy yeah. is perfect analogy you know this isn't only just happening in the water space right now but for digital software as a whole you know you have these emps mineral funds whoever it may be just looking to build technology or software internally and you always you're a fucking oil and gas company. You're not a software company. Oh man, that just <laughs> kills me. It kills me. We had a, so I'll give you another bit of a, a, along the evolution of what is now source water, right? And now it's going really well. It's going great. We're selling lots of data. We're selling lots of data <laughs> services about the water markets, but there was a stop along the way. So the original concept was the water marketplace. Well, that, you know, what we found was we were getting a lot of companies and people signing up for it, like over a thousand people registered for it, especially when we got into the, we got in 2017, the market started coming back, at least in Texas. We started seeing a lot of people showing up, a lot of people searching for water and disposal and recycling and prices. And we're the only source for data on who's got water, where, and what does it cost? Mm -hmm. Same thing on disposal. I mean, I view those as two sides of the same coin. Like disposal wells are basically in the water sourcing business. They're just sourcing produced water. Yeah, And so, we were seeing all this activity, but we weren't seeing a lot of transactions. And our business model was to get paid a small percentage of trades that were happening online. Well, that was yeah. not happening. I mean, we had a few, but yeah, it was I mean, not you, something you, need, you, you could, need volume for that. Yeah, it was not work, something right? where you could stay. So they were just coming to you guys for the intelligence, but not for the transactions. Yes, and it took there me a go. while to figure that out. Another kind of like, uh -huh, you know, moment. stupid tax sort yeah. of thing. Like, okay, we've been trying to make money on this, but people keep signing up, people keep searching. It's like, yeah, you know, I guess what we're doing is providing free proprietary research for the oil and gas industry, <laughs> water supply chain. Yeah, I mean, that's not where I'm going to donate my charity dollars. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there's better causes. So what we realized was- When, when, did, when did you realize it? Because I know you said yeah. you're, you're seven years in now. So when did you kind of yeah. have the realization? That was basically summer of 2017. Okay. So I guess that's about not quite two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. There was though pit stop along the way which was in 2016 when things were pretty desperate for everybody mm -hmm. and nobody was buying water or looking for water because whatever you had was more than you needed from the previous, you know, kind of an overhang. And so we were really focused on the production side. And this is what you made me think of it with the whole IT department thing, because we started, we started meeting with all these production teams and saying, what can we do to help you? You know, we're building this data stuff. We're doing water things. How can we help? And the main feedback we got was, help me get rid of paper tickets in the field because I'm losing a ton of money to, you know, air quotes, errors on the tickets. And we learned that this is just a massive, massive thing, right? Like I like to say that, you know, all these 120 barrel water trucks out in the Permian every single time. And there's, I'd estimate there's something like 30 million truck pickups and deliveries per year of water in the Permian. There's about, you know, 10,000 plus trucks doing, you know, multiple, maybe six to eight runs per day. I mean, you mm -hmm. do the math and every one of them comes and picks up a truckload of water and they leave a paper ticket at that unmanned tank battery that says picked up, you know, whatever time it is, seven 30 in the morning, picked up 120 barrels. Every time that ticket says 120 barrels for that 120 barrel truck in the entire history, the entire hundred year history of the Permian basin. That's 80 barrels. <laughs> there has never been a 120 barrel water truck that had 120 barrels of water in it. 
never once, if only because it wouldn't even be legal to drive it yeah. because of the, the weight of that, you know, dense salt water. Yeah. So, and there's a whole bunch of other reasons why it's That's, never been 120 barrels. So, so I think, uh, I mean, just legally speaking, yeah. you know, he's having a CDL and I think like, you know, max that I heard is like 90 barrels is what you'd be around, you know, just for weight capacity. So yeah, it's never 120. Never. And, and there's a bunch of other reasons why maybe it's not even in their interest to have, yeah. to have it as full <laughs> as it can be. So subject for a different podcast because we don't have time. But, <laughs> but what I will say is we were getting a great reaction from these bigger companies that were realizing like, yeah, we're losing 20% ish to, of our total operating spend on water hauling and disposal to basically error, fraud, waste, overhead, because we don't actually know who's picking up what from where and how much and where they're taking it. And so we started giving presentations around that, like we can help with that, you know? And again and again, we kind of had the response of awesome ideas. Our IT department's gonna, you know, build an app for this. And I, and I try to be like, can I explain why, you know, I mean, I, I guess, you know, you're not doing that for like the word processor that you use or you leave that to Microsoft at least, <laughs> right? So there's some software that you're not building yourself, but there's a reason structurally why that can't work. And the reason is you have many, many different operators who are hiring many, many different hauling companies and many, many different disposal companies. And every single one of those companies of those three categories is doing business with many other companies in each of the other categories. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, you're gonna end up with 20, 30, 40 different apps for the truckers. And your challenge is not the technology, it's the adoption. Because what happens when some truck driver is supposed to use 30 different apps depending on which tank battery happens to be at for that particular run of his six or eight runs that day. None of them. He's not yeah. going to use any of them. He's going to say, I couldn't figure it out. The thing got stuck. It broke. Mm -hmm. You know, I, so I left my paper ticket and you're always going to have to give him that option in case something's not working and you're never going to get any usage at all, right? This is a platform situation. So, you know, I've had that experience on the other things. Oh, let's do it ourselves. It's like, well, this is going to come back around. It'll just be a few years and we don't have those few years. So let's get back to the water market. <laughs> and, and basically we got to 2017 market starts really picking up again. We're seeing a lot of activity on our water marketplace. We're seeing a lot of research happening, but not a lot of dollars coming in. And so it was like, okay, let's do what everybody else does. And instead of trying to be, you know, such an earth shaker and like create this first upstream commodity marketplace on your water. Let's do what everybody else does and charge them for the data. And so then the question became, okay, if we're going to charge admission to our party, we better make sure it's a good party. And so, yeah, we've got thousands of priced water and disposal sources in West Texas on our system. West Texas, pretty big place. It's actually the size of all six New England states combined, including Maine, which is like Maine is not a small state. It's more of a medium-sized state. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you would basically... It's a lot of area to cover. And so even though we've got thousands of price listings and you know maybe even a third of all of the commercial saltwater disposal capacity is listed for sale in our marketplace. But if you're looking in any given spot, you might not find more than one or two listings within a 10 mile radius. Yeah. And that's really what you're looking for. And so I don't want a bunch of people coming to us saying, you know, we paid you for a year or, you know, we paid you for a month and now we're canceling because we got the one thing you had and now we're done. So how do we get more data in there that's gonna make this a good value? So the first way was, of course, we're going to start pulling in all this government data that relates to oil and gas and water, disposal wells and groundwater wells and surface water rights and all this different stuff. And I'd actually always assumed that that was easy. 
I just thought, well, it's public data, it's government data, anybody can do it, why should we do it? It's free stuff. Like, I'm not gonna make money selling free stuff. But it turns out it's actually really hard. Yeah. And I mean, that itself is like a whole long story, but let's just say the Railroad Commission data is famous in the industry for being, you know, late, incomplete, inaccurate. Yeah. Not the Railroad Commission's fault, they're just taking stuff that people submit to them and it's filled out the way it's filled out and there's, you know, 300,000 plus producing wells and over a million that have been drilled and who knows, there's just no way to check it. And so there's a lot of wrong stuff. There's a lot of confusing stuff in there. Every single one of these forms is like its own product line. And there's just hundreds of the forms. Yeah. Each one of them has its own weird things that go wrong that you don't understand until people start looking at what you're reporting and saying, that is not right. What about it is not right? And then they start to tell you and then you figure it out and you put in a system. So all of this data gathering stuff in terms of the public data from for us, what's now about six or seven different states, each one of those states has, you know, anywhere from, let's say, three to eight government agencies we're pulling data from. And each of those government agencies, in some cases like Railroad Commission, there might be 12 to 15 different data sets that we're pulling from them within that agency. So you're talking about hundreds of data sets being pulled in, each one with its own problems and everything. That requires a lot of data engineering. But the real breakthrough for us actually came really by happenstance. And it's become an increasing focus of our business, which is, yeah, it's, I mean, even from before summer 2017, we go out to Midland, drive around, we're trying to meet people. We're trying to get people to list their water for sale on our marketplace. And a lot of times, I mean, you guys have been out there a lot. You'll see these signs by the side of the road, water for sale, call this number. It'll be next to one of these big frack ponds. And you can see these frack ponds all over the place from the road and these water for, these for sale signs. And so whenever we call one of those numbers, because of course we call them, right? We're like, we're in the business of helping people sell water. Call them up and you get some guy who'd be like, I can sell my water on the internet. That's great, <laughs> sign me up. And so we're like, wow, these people love us. Like the people <laughs> who own the frack ponds, they are our, like, they are our most enthusiastic adopters. They just, they, they love the idea that they can sell water on the internet and not just from a sign by the side of the road. How do we find all those people? Turns out in the state of Texas, at least, maybe not in every state, if you own land, if you own surface, and you want to dig a ditch on your property and drill a couple of groundwater wells and pump that ditch full of water, God bless you. That is your right as an American, or at least as a Texan. And so there are no public records of where these frack ponds are. Nothing. And so, you know, every frack needs a frack pond. I mean, you always have to pump water into a pond as basically a staging area for when you're going to pump a lot of water really fast into those completions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was like, well, this is kind of an important part of the supply chain. I mean, basically whoever's building frack ponds and what's happening with the water in those ponds, you're predicting what's going to happen in the whole industry. And there is literally no information whatsoever, not just about how much water's in those ponds, but even like where the ponds are and who owns them. How do we figure that out? And... And we bumbled around for a while. And then I had an idea, which was, you know, maybe we can see squares of water in the desert from space. That might be a thing. And so we started working on it. Sure enough, that part, not that hard. And so we started tying it into all the other land and mineral data and the drilling permits and figuring out, okay, so we're seeing these ponds and some of them are actually golf course ponds and some of them are actually cattle ponds and some of them are reservoirs, but we've come up with systems for figuring out, okay, that's a frack pond or that's a drilling reserve pond. And now how much water's in it? What kind of water does it look like? And who probably owns that and who's probably using it? And we can associate all that in a database and put it on a map with very current satellite imagery. Well, this then went further in terms of what we're doing because 
we did a study with the UT Bureau of Economic Geology where what I was trying to do was figure out do frack ponds really predict fracking? And that particular study, the answer was inconclusive for a bunch of reasons I'm worried with, but basically because frack ponds get reused a lot. And so probably the first time it appears it does predict something, but then it's kind of going up and down. It's hard Mm -hmm. to say what it means. However, we were comparing it as a control to IHS data. IHS brings this data from Frack Focus, which is kind of a quasi-public thing. Mm-hmm. Frack Focus gets from the Railroad Commission. Railroad Commission gets from the operators. And it's basically voluntary reporting of how much water went into your frack. And so we're trying to see how does the surface water that we're seeing correlate to the reported water historically for, is, that's being used in the fracks. And this was like June of 2018. So we're looking at the previous two years. And what we see is that the amount of surface water in these pits keeps going up and up and up and up. Okay, that makes sense because we know we're in an upturn in the industry. But then the IHS data, second half of 2017, just sort of starts dwindling down. And whoa, 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 going down. I'm like, that's so weird. Like this would make sense if it was 2015 or first half of 2016, but this makes no sense second half Mm -hmm. of 2017. What is going on? What is going on? And then I realized, oh, it's not that the amount of water being used is going down. It's that it takes six to 12 months for the operator to report to frack focus, to report to the railroad commission, to, re- to report to IHS, for IHS to release to the customers before you're actually seeing the information. So when we're looking at this information from not just IHS, but all these companies that rely on government data to tell you what's happening in the oil field, you're always looking into the past some amount. Mm-hmm. And in the case of this water usage data, you were looking six to 12 months in the past, but we're looking at satellite imagery that's no more than five days old. So that's when I, that was when the light bulb went off. It was like, you know what? We don't have to see the future. If we're seeing the present and everyone else is looking at the past, we're better than everybody else. And that's good enough. I don't, we don't need to do any predictive analytics. We just need to know what we're looking at today. We just need to see a picture of it. <laughs> and so you see a picture. And so now it turns out to be a little trickier than that because yeah. Permian Basin is better part of 100,000 square miles. Yeah. You know, like I said, not just bigger than New England, but actually bigger than the nine smallest U.S. states. And you wouldn't drive around the state of Massachusetts counting the swimming pools in people's backyards. <laughs> you wouldn't get very far. And guess what? Massachusetts is a really tiny fraction of the size of the Permian Basin. You wouldn't do that. Plus, even if you did try to do that with a team of hundreds of landmen, you still would fail because most of these ponds are not even visible from any road you could ever drive on yep. without getting shot at, yep. right? <laughs> so, so like, you know, you're going to, well, I'm just looking to check out your pond. You better head back now. So, you know, we, we then started thinking about, I started thinking about, wow, that's really interesting. What else can we see happening on the ground in yesterday's satellite imagery that either never shows up in the regulatory data or takes a really long time to show up. And the next idea was well pads because well pads always have to get built before the rig goes to the pad. Mm-hmm. And what, why is everybody, you know, not to name names, but like, why do people buy drilling info? You know, mm-hmm. well, basically to see the daily drilling permit report and where the rigs are. Okay. So we did this study again with actually not with UT, with, with a, a guy at University of Utah, where we compared, okay, how do the drilling permits historically compare to the spud dates versus well pad construction for those same wells comparing to the spud dates? What we found was, the kind of mind blower was, the average drilling permit in Texas is released or filed 
the soonest that you can see it from the Railroad Commission, on average, 16 days after the well has already spotted. <laughs> and so all these companies are saying, we're trying to get ahead of the, of the rig by you know looking at the permits so we can get there and sell them our stuff or keep ahead of our competitors. You're two weeks behind them. <laughs> you, you already missed it. And so it turns out that the well pads, on average, are built about four months before the well gets spotted, which just makes sense. I mean, if you're talking to somebody who's a drilling coordinator, it's like, well, when do you build those roads and pads? You're always going to build them a pretty far time out ahead of when you think the rig might possibly get there. Yeah. And the range might be anywhere from one month to even nine months. Mm -hmm. And we saw it as be, typically it's kind of in the three to four month range, but it's definitely a lot sooner than the drilling permit comes out. And so from there, it was like, okay, there's a lot of stuff we can do with the satellite imagery. And coming back to our whole business model, it's like, hmm, now we don't just have the, the, the marketplace data, which is like proprietary and valuable, but not extensive, right? Like when you've got a price on water disposal on our system, that's valuable, but there's not enough of it. Okay. And then we've got the government data, which is very extensive, but isn't inherently proprietary, right? Because in theory, anybody can get it. And in mm -hmm. practice, there's actually a lot of art and science to making it useful and reliable. Yeah. And we've really invested a lot in data integrity. Mm -hmm. So because you just and we do that because when we show customers what we're doing, like we just get complaints out the wazoo when somebody's like, I have a well there and you're not showing it. So I know nothing that you do is right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we always had to respond to that being like, oh boy, you know, it's, like you know, you let's find to, out what happened. Public right? data companies in the space, you know, that's what they focus on public data. And that's a common complaint. Like you'll have some geologists. Oh, no, you don't have that well. That entire, means they're all wrong. The entire thing shit. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we had to basically like always be able to say, here's why. It's not there and have a good reason, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they just lose all trust. Okay, so there's a lot of investment in that. But the real breakthrough was the satellite imagery analytics because here's something that's both extensive, covers the whole basin and potentially the whole world, potentially, and that nobody else has and that's really hard to do and actually really is proprietary, not only because of the methods, but we've actually had four US patents granted on the use of satellite imagery for analyzing energy infrastructure. Wow. So not just filed, but like, I mean, everyone says patent pending, they came out. We got yeah. them. <laughs> we have so. Patents. How do you? How, yeah. So let's, let's stop on that for a second. How yeah. do you? How do you patent that? Is it? Is it a patented process or is it a patent type of technology or? It's always a process with a utility patent. It's how you do it. And so, yeah. if if all you're doing is looking at satellite pictures and you know literally saying, "Well, that looks like a pond." Okay, check. Nobody can patent that. Looking at a picture and saying what you think you're looking at the picture that is not a patentable thing. Yeah, it's got to be not obvious to a practitioner of the art, basically an expert, it needs to be not obvious for them. That's one of the standards and it has to be new, it has to be novel. And so we seem to be the first company that really got into using machine learning and computer vision and external data sources to figure out very fast at large scale what's in a whole basin wide area. So, you know, in other words, there's plenty of companies that we're already just taking satellite imagery and saying, I'm looking at my lease every week. You know, I want to see if something happened on that lease and you know, that's fine. You're looking at your lease. But when you're covering hundred thousand square miles, it turns out, and we actually did this math. If you were just going to have trained humans every five days, trying to cover the entire Permian basin to spot every single new frack pond and well pad, you would need a team of more than a hundred people working full-time 24 hours a day, 
seven days a week to keep up with that every five day image pace. Only a hundred? I feel like it'd be more than a hundred. Not necessarily a lot more than a hundred. It was like 150, but like (laughs) nobody's doing that. That makes no, no sense. So the things that we do to be able to process the entire Permian Basin every five days or even every three days and pick out every one of those new things, we use machine learning, AI, computer vision, and we pull in a lot of kind of external sources to cross relate like all the wellbore data, you know, that helps us figure out where the well pads are. Okay, that's a well pad, not a home site because there was a wellbore there. That's part of our patent. Looking at different periods of time, looking at different resolutions of imagery, there's a whole bunch of specific methods we use to accelerate that that are patent that that are and were patentable. So it's really about the how you do it. It's not just the it's yeah. not just the, oh, I thought of a thing. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm going to pat. Yeah. My, my, my first thought was like, okay, well, you know, what if somebody from Julie Info is listening to the podcast and, you know, what if they're going to go out and get some satellite imagery and, and kind of take you guys head on? But I didn't know that it was as, as uh, laborious as, as that of having, you know, that is the equivalent of 100 people working 24 hours a day to do that manually. So you guys have built up a nice little moat around that. It's, you know, remember that we talked to that satellite imagery company, I don't know, sometime last year. I didn't, I didn't have a clue that you guys were doing this. Yeah. And I was talking about that. Nape? Yeah, they're at Nape, I think. I can't remember. But anyways, talking about using satellite imagery for mineral funds to truly get ahead of the business. That's our number one. Yeah, I mean, the number one people who, because we weren't even sure who necessarily wanted this, but like the number one people who were the most salivating to get their hands on this data is mineral funds. Yeah. Because if they can figure out in advance who's going to be drilling where, that's the whole game. That's what, I don't know shit about mineral funds, but I was like, man, I know that we can use the satellite imagery to run circles around so many <laughs> other guys. We're, we're doing, there's, there's some other ways that we're doing. So the way I think about our business now is we're trying to help our clients get further and further ahead in time mm-hmm. about what's happening in the oil field. And we're helping them to get deeper and deeper into the ground about what's happening in the mm-hmm. oil field, particularly around water. But as you can see, it's kind of expanding to all upstream activity, which, you know, water relates to all upstream activity. So one area is that satellite imagery. Another is we built a system that scrapes 691 Texas and New Mexico newspapers because in those newspapers somewhere every day are a couple of little legal notices where somebody has posted publicly because they have to, that they're going to drill a new injection or disposal well. And they don't even say exactly where it is, but because new disposal injection wells, particularly disposal wells are the longest lead time permitting item now in the upstream process because there's more and more objections to them. There's concerns about seismicity. Yeah. There's concerns about, you know, cross communication underground. Mm-hmm. And so if you know, you're going to be drilling somewhere, basically the first thing you have to line up after the lease, first you got the lease, but basically the next thing you're going to do is figure out where am I going to get my disposal? And if I need permits, I better start this process get it now. Yeah. So the earliest thing that happens is filing that public notice, which is always published in the most obscure local, <laughs> local paper it can possibly be in because they do not want you to see that notice, right? Yeah. Because the whole point of the notice is to give people nearby the opportunity to protest. Yeah. And if you get protested, that permit that might've taken you three months is now going to take you a year and a half, two years, yeah. even if you get it and you might not get it. And so we scrape all the, the, the bigger companies. Some of them have two or three people whose job is just to read the Pecos Enterprise, you know, <laughs> the, the, you know, the finest semi-annual newspaper in West Texas. And actually I think they're, they're semi-weekly and, you know, but all sorts of local 
papers like that and try to find those. And by the way, it's not like the notices are only the disposal notices. I mean, they're like for, you know, probate or like so-and-so died or went bankrupt or whatever it is, you know, we're having an estate sale. <laughs> so you're picking out the two to 10 of them that appear every single day in Texas or New Mexico. Start to, become, start to become familiar with the locals that just keep getting arrested every week. <laughs> right. Just pick out Johnny, other stuff. Johnny's in jail again. <laughs> that might be the next thing, right? No, but the people who actually, their job is to read it. They probably do get really into it, you know? So they're like, this is like days of our lives. So, you know, we're trying to get people out for further in time in terms of what's happening. And then we're doing more and more around the geoscience of saltwater disposal. So along with the fact that up until the last few years, even though water is a huge, huge part of the upstream industry, nobody was really thinking about it systemically. They were just kind of feeling the tail or the toenail of the elephant or the nose of the elephant, you know, that uh, old saw. Well, we, we realized for a hundred years, geologists have been studying the Permian basin to figure out where the oil is, get it out. But actually, nobody's been studying the subsurface of the Permian Basin to figure out where to put the water back down. And so it turns out there's about 47 saltwater disposal capable formations in the Permian Basin. And basically only three or four of them ever get used. And so there's a lot more capacity there than people realize. Interesting. And meanwhile, the couple that are really, really popular, like the San Andres and the Midland Basin, that's just what everybody does because it's shallow, so it's inexpensive to drill into it but it's getting massively overpressured and that causes all kinds of problems. Cause mm-hmm. basically when you drill through it, that water then shoots down into your well. And so you're like pumping water into your well. Mm-hmm. And also it can result in blowouts cause you're hitting a really high pressure zone. And so you got to mud up and to get through it. So it really matters where these pressure layers are yeah. and where there's available capacity in terms of that porosity and permeability and those lower pressure levels. And there's a lot of places to put water, but you know, no one really mapped that out. So, we're trying to map that stuff out in 3D to say not just where are the disposal wells and what are the pressures at the you know at the top of the hole, but where are those disposals really injecting into, not just what does it say in the permit, because the permit is wrong. And to the extent that people are looking at where's this disposal injecting, they're looking at the drilling permit for the disposal, which says, you know, we're gonna inject into this five thousand foot interval from the top to the bottom, because hey, if we went to all the trouble to get this permit, we want to ask for as much as we can get. Mm-hmm. But they might have only perforated a few hundred feet in there. And so if you're buying that disposal because you think it's got a 5,000 foot interval, you're, you're really messing up because there's only 300 feet of actual interval and you're gonna have to rework that well and you know, mm-hmm. reperforate and all this other stuff if you're really gonna get that value out and that's not priced into what you're looking at. Or if you're gonna drill a new well, you need to know exactly where the active intervals are in that area. You know, how are similar wells of a similar depth and the X, Y, and Z performing to that one that you're gonna drill? Because that tells you where should I perforate it? Because I'm not gonna do the whole thing. So where's that capacity? And then mapping that out. And so really creating that kind of 3D, 4D understanding of over time, where are things happening under the ground with the water? And that's that's an area that just is is all pretty new. I just learned so much about water. <laughs> this first is my all, life. First of all, I want to say it's probably the easiest podcast I've ever done because I didn't even have to ask anything. Josh just took it and ran with it and answered everything that I could have possibly asked. So that was that was great. I really the point that you brought about, you know, for the last fifty years studying the geology of the Permian for oil production, but not for water injection. That was a really good point. I've never thought about that. And what'd you say, 47 different formations? Yeah, in some places there's as many as 47. Depends That's where you're looking, but yeah. That's wild. So with that, you know, you look at technology such as water recycling or treatment, you know, seeing a lot of activity in that space. But 
you know, if you have 47 different formations that we can actually inject into, it doesn't seem like the, the actual method of disposing water is that big of a pressing mm-hmm. issue in the short term. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, there's, there's more, there's a lot more room down there than people realize mm-hmm. just from kind of using the same old places versus how much more is there. From the beginning of this, look, you know, we talked about way back in the day when we started this podcast, how <laughs> the original vision for the company was to create a marketplace for recycling water between operators. And at the time, what I thought would come about sooner would be not just widespread recycling instead of freshwater sourcing and disposal, but also that you'd start to see in oil and gas regions, at least, opportunities for trading between the operators, agriculture, and municipal users. And you start to see real treatment of water as a commodity across all of the big users. Because to be clear, I mean, in the scheme of industries that use water, oil and gas is literally the smallest player on any list you can make. It is so far down in terms of water usage, way under so far under agriculture, so far under municipal, so far under power plants, so far under even like other kinds of mining, it's tiny. Now, oil and gas is the only industry that is a net new producer of water. There is no other industry in the world that brings water to the surface that was never there before, mm-hmm. right? Because we're tapping into these way deep formation, bringing the Permian Sea back up. Yeah, And so- it's not hard to imagine a future in which it's the oil, gas, and water business, mm-hmm. and you're selling water for other kinds of uses. And any kind of water can be treated to any quality standard. There's, you know, you can go through a whole bunch of different processes and end up doing RO, and you can end up with perfect distilled water that's actually too clean to drink. That's a real thing. Don't drink a lot of distilled water, that's not good for you. <laughs> and you can do that with the, you know, 200,000 part per million salt water that's coming out of the ground. It's got all kinds of things in it because it's been stewing down there with, you know, dead dinosaurs for hundred million years. <laughs> you can drink that water if you spend enough money treating it. And what does that mean? Probably spending $8, $10 a barrel to treat it. Well, there's the problem, right? Because to the extent that water costs 50 cents a barrel or less, or you can buy from your water utility for, you know, five cents a gallon, no one's going to spend six or eight or ten dollars a barrel to treat mm-hmm. salt water to make it drinkable. So we're just not at a place yet in our economic history, basically, mm-hmm. where you can justify those economics. But it's definitely technical, fe- technically feasible. I think over time, like most technologies, water treatment technologies will keep getting better and better. The costs will go down and down. And if we're in a situation where the population, the economy, continue to grow water demand will keep going up. And at some point those lines will cross. And then even though there may be plenty more disposal capacity out there, it will make more economic sense to treat and sell that water rather than disposing of it because there's other good things you can do with it. Today, the only really useful thing you can do with the salt water that comes out from the oil and gas industry is use it to create more energy. Mm -hmm. And that turns out to be very inexpensive. So major kind of change in understanding the industry in terms of water management over really just the last five years is that you do not need any fresh water in the hydraulic fracturing process. In fact, there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that reusing produced water, salt water that came out of the formation and putting it back where it came from actually gets you better results in your fracks than using fresh water. Interesting. So the industry is moving toward 
you know, five years from now, I think it'll be a really rare thing that you'd ever see drinkable or close to drinkable fresh water or even naturally occurring brackish water mm -hmm. being used in the hydraulic fracturing process. I think all injection stimulation water will be recycled flow back and produced water, but that will still only consume maybe 10% of the water the industry is producing. That's nominal, yeah. You'll still have like 90% that needs to go somewhere for disposal or other treatment reuse. Yeah. And when the numbers kind of cross economically that sale for gray water purposes or certain kinds of agriculture or certain kinds of saltwater, kind of light you know, brackish water crops or even for drinking water, when that happens, no one knows. No, maybe it's 10 years away. Maybe it's 20 years away. It's, it's not forever. It'll happen. Yeah. You got any questions, Jake? Before I have so many. I have so I many. Mean, I feel like we have to have a I second know, episode yeah. with Josh. Like, <laughs> wow, I'm only a few miles away. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know everything about water now. Just like I learned French in two days when we were in France. <laughs> <laughs> but I have so many questions about you, but we're, we're at the we're at the one hour mark. So let's make a point to have you back on. I want to learn more about you personally. I have so many questions about, I mean, we just jumped straight into 16 to MIT to taking over the entire water industry <laughs> in the world. So I've got so many questions about that. And then also some of the things that Dane mentioned, something about life-size transformers or oh, something. Boy, yeah. <laughs> so I'm extremely curious about uh, that. We're, we're definitely going to hit hit this up with mega I gotta say there's a there's a there's a two and a half million dollar giant robot that we built that is on eBay right now so look up megabots they already auctioned it but then the top bidder turned out he was like a 10 year old kid who had no money I mean, so if I, was a -year -old, <laughs> if I was a 10 year old I'd be placing bets for a two and a half million dollar robot so, so as soon as we get off the mic we're hopping on eBay because I want to check yeah. this thing out yeah, no. so sure. but this conversation though I mean you brought up a good point you know the, the commodities you know oil gas and then water but then you know you can really extend that out to a fourth one which is data you know I believe mm -hmm. data is going to become you know a priority Absolutely. for oil and gas companies for mineral funds whoever yeah. it is so you know you guys are kind of crossing it both of those paths so where can people find you if, if they're listening working a mineral fund or EMP or or anyone else interested, yeah. where can they find you guys at? What's your website? We're at www.sourcewater.com, just like right. it sounds, one word. Easy and enough. Josh at sourcewater.com. And our office number in downtown Houston is 713-909-4664. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show today, man. This is extremely interesting. I'm sure people are going to learn a lot. I know I learned a lot. So thanks for taking the time to come on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, awesome. So between this and then we also have... So we had uh, Kurt Kenewitz on, and then we also had Jeff Johnson with Episynergy. So we've got three of the leading water guys, in my opinion, who seem to just know everything. So now I feel very well versed on water. Enough so, to be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, enough <laughs> to be dangerous. So I hope you guys enjoyed those. So just in case you wanted to get a comprehensive view of the water industry, listen to this episode, obviously, those two as well. Once again, thanks to Josh for coming on the show. As I mentioned in a previous episode, this is also on YouTube. Just check out Digital Wildcatters on YouTube, and you can see it in video format as well as this audio format. So we will catch you guys on the next episode. Come, 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 come.